Welcome to another edition of the Cool Stuff Ride Home Podcast. I'm Reggie Rizzo along with Marcus Paff, and we're bringing you some of the more interesting stories of the day. On today's episode, the transatlantic flight made using only sustainable fuel, a lost space tomato has been found, and one of nature's rarest occurrences. Plus, this week in history takes a look at the Mona Lisa. Coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. Well, as humans search for more sustainable ways to carry out the daily tasks we've all grown so accustomed to, one multinational company has taken a huge step forward within the field of aviation. Virgin Atlantic, the commercial airliner founded by British billionaire Richard Branson, recently completed a groundbreaking transatlantic flight from London to New York using only sustainable aviation fuel. So what does that mean exactly? Well, sustainable aviation fuel is defined as a biofuel with similar properties to conventional jet fuel, but with a smaller carbon footprint. That per energy.gov. SAF can be made from a variety of sources, including crops, household waste, and cooking oils, believe it or not. And depending upon which products are used to produce it, SAF can greatly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Per a BBC report, the Virgin Atlantic flight was completed in a Boeing 787 filled with 50 tons of SAF. Two types were used with 88% derived from waste fats and the rest from the waste of corn production here in the U.S. Now, it's important to point out that planes still emit carbon when using SAF, but the industry says the life cycle emissions of these fuels can be up to 70% lower. So the Virgin flight was initially approved last month by the UK's Civil Aviation Authority, with a number of companies involved in making it a reality. These included engine maker Rolls-Royce and energy giant BP. The flight was not open to the paying public, but there were a few passengers aboard, including UK Transport Secretary Mark Harper, who declared, quote, history has been made, end quote, upon landing. A Perche Weiss, chief executive of Virgin Atlantic, the recent flight proved that fossil-derived fuel can be replaced by sustainable aviation fuel. He went on to tell the BBC, quote, it's really the only pathway to decarbonizing long-haul aviation over and above having the youngest fleet in the sky. It is a really momentous achievement, end quote. Now, while this is clearly a step forward, sustainable aviation fuel still comes with its fair share of challenges. The fuel is currently in short supply and, of course, more expensive to produce, meaning flight prices would likely jump with its expanded use. Sir Richard Branson himself admitted to the BBC that it was, quote, going to take a while before there was enough SAF for everybody to use. Went on to say, but you have to start somewhere, and if we didn't prove it can be done, you would never, ever get sustainable aviation fuel, end quote. SAF is already used in smaller amounts, blended with traditional jet fuel, but accounts for less than 0.1% of aviation fuel consumed around the world. Again, that per the BBC. Aircraft are usually only to use up to 50% in a blend at this point. And yet, there are still plenty of experts who believe this move is nothing more than a stepping stone at best, given SAF, as we said, still produces at least some level of carbon emissions. The aforementioned Transport Secretary Harper told the BBC, quote, There are those campaigners who want to tell ordinary people that they can't fly. That's their view. They're entitled to it. The government doesn't agree with them. He went on to say we are also involved with supporting the industry to develop hydrogen and also electric flights for shorter haul flights 
rights. So all of that technology is being developed, end quote. He'd go on to acknowledge that using SAF is not the only solution, but said it is a really important step with those other technologies to make sure we can carry on flying and protect the environment. The UK government plans to require 10% of aviation fuel to be SAF by the year 2030. Now, if you're wondering about some of those other technologies that were referenced, hydrogen has been talked about fairly extensively in recent years. In fact, back in March, a small upstart airline named Connect completed the first ever regional flight powered principally on hydrogen. The 40-seat aircraft took off and flew for 15 minutes, reaching an altitude of more than 11,000 feet. Hydrogen is considered a clean fuel source and, per the U.S. Department of Energy, can be produced from a variety of domestic resources such as natural gas, nuclear power, biomass, and renewable power like solar and wind. These qualities make it an attractive fuel option for transportation and electricity generation. In the case of U.S.-based Connect Airlines, the energy generated by the burning of hydrogen feeds directly into the electric motor. This means there are no batteries on board which drastically cuts down on costs and, of course, weight, which is always a consideration when you're flying. Now, generally speaking, it's difficult for heavy machinery to go green since things like planes, trains, and heavy construction equipment require massive doses of portable power, the kind generated typically through diesel or kerosene. It needs to be not only portable and combustible, but also light enough not to disrupt weight restrictions. For that reason, passenger jets are at the moment limited to SAF or hydrogen. Reggie, like so many stories that we talk about on this podcast, this feels like a terrific leap forward, a step in the right direction. But at the end of the day, it is just that. And what will be more interesting, or perhaps maybe not more interesting, but equally important, is to see what comes next. Where are we in two years? Where are we in 10 years in terms of our ability to use SAF on a regular basis. Did it list a cost in there on what uh, it actually cost to have this type no, of fuel versus hydrogen? No specific cost. No specific cost. It just said it is considerably more expensive, which obviously creates a problem because you're going to have to pay a lot more to fly with it. That's one of my concerns is the cost versus hydrogen. I, I don't know if it would cost as much. I feel like that's a little bit more abundant or easy to get a hold of. Uh, I do wonder, uh, though this is probably a weird thought, about the smell. Have you ever been on the tarmac just waiting for the plane to take off and you just smell that jet fuel? Do you know that I, smell I'm talking about? I guess I don't. No. I mean, I've sat oh. on the tarmac, but I don't recall ever having any I, sort of odor that ru ruined my day. I seem to get stuck by the wings a lot. And I have a, I, I want to say a sensitive, I, I'm sensitive to smells. Okay. So that, that smell sometimes really gives me a headache. So I'm kind of curious where the, the difference is on that, that. It's just it's can sometimes be so powerful to me. It gives me a headache as I'm sitting there. Yeah, that's wild, Reg. That's not something that I have experienced. Not to say that I've never experienced an odor on a plane. A lot of times it feels like there's no place for that to go. And that's not <laughs> a pleasant experience. But jet fuel, it would be a first for me. Oh, uh, yeah. Set that wonderful recycled air. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Here's one you may have never heard before. An astronaut loses a tomato on a space station and then is accused of eating it. Well, it was an important tomato, at least. It was one of the first ones harvested in space. The tomato went missing eight months ago, and Frank Rubio was accused of eating it since he was the last one to be around it. In September, Rubio said, I spent so many hours looking for that thing. I'm sure the desecrated tomato will show up at some point and vindicate me years in the future, end quote. 
Well, that time actually has already come. During a live stream event celebrating the 25th anniversary of the station, NASA astronaut Jasmine Mogabilly said the remains of the tomato had finally been found. Mogabilly said, quote, Our good friend Frank Rubio, who had it home, has been blamed for quite a while for eating the tomato. But we can exonerate him. We found the tomato, end quote. They did not say where they found the tomato or the status of it, but Rubio had predicted when it was found, it would probably be pretty decayed due to the humidity in the station. Rubio did return to Earth in September and has been the butt of many jokes for supposedly eating said tomato, so hopefully this will be the end of it for him. First question, if you were in space and you grew a tomato, would you eat it? Well, I mean... It depends on how hungry I am, I guess. But no, if it was a momentous tomato, like you said, one of the first to be harvested in space, I don't know that that would be the greatest idea. It feels like that might be something to say for the group. Although, I mean, the fact that it's going to go bad anyway, what what was he supposed to be doing with these tomatoes? Were they that was my making thought. ketchup or what was happening? That's what I thought. It, it, it's going to go bad. Yeah, it's a momentous tomato. You put your records in there, pop it in your mouth, be done with it. <laughs> I mean, get a few pictures first, verify that it happened. We want to tell everyone at Earth, hey, look, we finally grew vegetation, fruit in space. But ultimately, you got to do something with it. And so I, I don't see why eating it would be the worst scenario there. But good for Frank. You know, at the end of the day, that's not what you want to be remembered for. <laughs> no. If you were someone who went to the International Space Station and the first thing people think of is, oh, that's the guy that ate the tomato, the jerk. I mean, that's not the legacy you were hoping to leave, presumably. So good for Frank. Yeah, that's not the legacy I would want to be the tomato guy. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So he's vindicated. We can move on and everybody feels good about this story now. Well, an extremely rare white leucistic alligator has been welcomed into the world at a reptile park in Florida. I'll explain the definition of the word leucistic in a moment. Now, measuring just over 19 inches, the female alligator emerged from her shell last week, making history as one of the few documented leucistic alligators, as announced by Gatorland in Orlando. Mark McHugh, the president and CEO of Gatorland, expressed the exceptional nature of this occurrence, stating, quote, this is beyond rare. It is absolutely extraordinary, end quote. So what is leucism and how does it differ from animals deemed to be albino? Because I'm guessing that's the question on your mind right now. Well, per the BBC, leucism inhibits pigmentation in some skin cells, whereas with albinism, there is no melanin produced at all. Animals with leucism may have darker pigment in their soft tissue and typically retain their dark eyes, whereas albinos have pink eyes. Leucistic alligators are the rarest genetic variation in the American alligator today. The park is seeking the input of the public to name said alligator who traces her lineage back to a nest of leucistic alligators discovered in Louisiana in 1987. The newborn is the first solid white alligator ever documented to have descended from the original alligators found in that nest. Among the seven remaining gators from the nest, three now reside at Gatorland, according to McHugh. So it's a family affair down there. Park visitors will have the opportunity to view both the leucistic alligator and her traditionally colored brother in early 2024. For the moment, McHugh says the park will closely monitor their health and growth away from visitor eyes. So Reggie, is this something that would be appealing enough to you to, you know, if you're in Orlando, check out Gatorland? Maybe, maybe, but 
again, it, it seems pretty close to an albino, and I've seen an albino alligator. In fact, I live in Wisconsin in the northeast Wisconsin area, and there is an albino alligator there called Lucky. I think he's 16 if he's still alive. It's been a year or two since I've been there, but he's one of only 23 albino alligators in the world, so that's pretty rare there too, but I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll stop by, although I'm not a huge fan of getting too close to alligators. I, I know a lot of people will do that, but I just want to keep my distance. Well, first of all, I've seen Happy Gilmore, so I know how that can end up. <laughs> yeah. But also, you know a lot of people that like alligators, have been around alligators? What? My son would well, love I, to jump in an alligator pit, I think. Might I submit that you wouldn't be a very good father if you allowed for that to happen, Reg, though? That's, you see, you want to refrain your children from doing this sort of or thing. Or father of the year if it all turns out well. <laughs> yeah, the odds are high. About <laughs> as well as uh, you seeing a leucistic alligator in your lifetime. <laughs> Taking a look at this day in history, in 1913, the Mona Lisa was recovered after it was missing for two years because it was stolen from the Louvre Museum. So what made the Mona Lisa so famous that, you know, like it is today? Sure, it had some popularity because it was painted by Leonardo da Vinci, but what really set it up for fame was this theft in 1911. Italian Andyman Vincenzo Perugia stole the Mona Lisa from the Louvre in 1911. Because of that theft, pictures of the painting were all over international papers when police hit a dead end in the case. So how did he do it? Perugia was hired by the Louvre to make protective glass cases, one of which, of course, was for the Mona Lisa. He ended up hiding in a closet overnight and tried to walk out of the Louvre with the painting under his smock. However, he found the doors locked and he couldn't get out. He tried to remove the doorknob, still had no luck. It wasn't until a nice plumber saw him and unlocked the door for him that he was able to get out of the building with the painting. <laughs> no one noticed the painting was missing for 24 hours. Part of that being because, you know, sometimes they take the paintings down, restore them. It took 24 hours to realize, hey, nobody had the painting. According to Noah Charney, professor of art history and author of the thefts of Mona Lisa, the Louvre had over 400 rooms, but only 200 guards and even fewer on duty overnight. There were basically no alarms in play. He added it was under secure, but to be fair, most museums were at that time, end quote. He said the theft launched the Mona Lisa into becoming a household name for people who had never been to Europe and had no interest in art, and he said it just continued from there, end quote. The head of the Paris Police Department ended up uh, retiring in shame, due to the inability to recover the painting. Two years later, how it got recovered was that an art dealer in Florence received a letter saying from someone that they had the Mona Lisa and it was just signed Leonardo. That letter, of course, came from Perugia. A meeting was set up and he showed up with the painting. Supposedly, the painting had spent the last few years in a trunk in his apartment. He claimed he wanted to return the painting back to its homeland, Italy. He ended up getting seven months in jail for the crime. Charney said he seemed to have generally been convinced he would have been heralded as a national hero and generally dismayed to discover that he wasn't, adding, he was maybe a few pickles short of a sandwich, but not a lunatic, end quote. <laughs> in Charney's opinion, there was really nothing that distinguishes the painting per se, other than the fact it was really good work by a famous artist, that is until it was stolen. He said the theft is what really skyrocketed its appeal and made it a household name. He thinks if a different one of Leonardo's works had been stolen, then that would have been the most famous work in the world, not the Mona Lisa, end quote. Have you uh, ever seen the Mona Lisa in person, Marcus? No, I, I have not seen it in person, but I've got two thoughts after hearing you run us through this story. Number one, this guy stole this painting. 
that he knew he would get in trouble for if he returned it. Or apparently he didn't, based on his reaction there at the end. But he steals it, and he doesn't try to sell it. He doesn't try to reap benefit from it. He puts it in a trunk and leaves it there until he thinks he's just going to waltz back in with it at some point and be heralded as a hero because you were the guy that stole it in the first place. I mean, I, think he I should say be, he's a few pickles short of a sandwich. I think he thought he'd be a hero to Italy. I think he wanted to return it to someone, a museum in Italy or something. And he thought everyone would love him for it. But, you know, as the stories come out, he starts hearing how... You know, it needs to be returned and no one else is getting criticized for it except for the police in France for their inability to recover the painting. I don't think he got the press that he was hoping for. Clearly he did not, but I think he was delusional. Now, the other part that jumps out at me, because I've seen, I don't remember the name, but I've seen the documentary on Netflix about the art heist in Boston in the early 1990s. What is it about museums, typically art museums, where we're just going to hire two college dropouts with nothing better to do to, to handle overnight security for our museum that contains priceless works of art. Who is it that continues to make those types of decisions for something that's so valuable and so desired? I'm speculating here, but I'm thinking they think nowadays that they have such advanced security systems beyond just personnel. We, yeah, I don't we think installed a ring doorbell it. at our museum. You'll never get in now. <laughs> no. I like Boy, how the plumber well... let him out in this story. That's what it gets me. <laughs> it's just a nice plumber thing. Oh, you need out? Sure. Let me open that up for you. <laughs> so typical. Never mind that I'm walking off with this painting. Don't tell anyone about this. Okay, and, sir, I won't. Just here to fix the sink. Well, I think the key to that, I personally think the reason why he probably took the Mona Lisa is the size. It's a lot smaller than people think it is. So that one would have been easier to sneak out than some of the other larger paintings in the museum. Yeah, uh, fair enough. I, but at the end of the day, I still go, what, you did nothing with it other than put it in a trunk. So yeah. what exactly was the point of all this? And he only got seven months in prison. That's not too bad for stealing what is now considered the most famous painting in the world. Yeah, I wonder if he uh, brushed up on his ability to understand Ooh. how to <laughs> capitalize on stolen art during yeah. those seven months in prison. After you got to the point where you're like, well, I'm not going to be a hero, I think I would have said, well, might as well make some money off of it. Well, of course. Or if you really feel like you got to return it, I drop it off in the night and get the heck out of there. But yeah. hey, here we are. That'll do it for another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. You can always reach us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. That email is also on our website. If you want any links to the stories we talked about today, we put a few links on the show description as well. I'm Reggie Rizzo with Marcus Path. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Cool.